Welcome to the Sorority Nutritionist Podcast. I'm your host, registered dietitian and weight loss BFF, Lauren Hubert. Each week, we are changing the narrative that women can be hot and successful at the same damn time and do it in a healthy way. Hello, sexy fit babes. Welcome back to another episode of the Sorority Nutritionist Podcast. Today, we are joined with a very iconic physician who Spencer, Dr. Spencer Nadolsky actually doesn't even know this. I started following him probably around the time I became a dietitian or right before, but he is just the funniest, most real down to earth physician on social media. I think he's literally so funny. I think you guys are also going to learn so much today regarding prescriptions and weight loss drugs and why is it harder for some people to lose weight? So without further ado, welcome Dr. Nadolsky. Thanks. You're too nice, too kind. (laughs) I love it. Well, there are a lot of doctors out there that obviously have the same degrees, but I think what's really interesting about what you're doing is you get like real life. And I think a lot of times not to like pick on some other physicians, but sometimes I find that there are some diet programs and philosophies around weight loss that really don't have the person and like individual in mind. It's like, you have to go on this crazy plan, cut out all carbs, go to the gym two times a day. Like if you're a working mom, like you don't have time for that. Like, like how does that even fit in? So I really love how you're just so realistic with your recommendations, obviously based on science, but like you have to meet each person with where they're at ultimately. Yeah. I'll never forget. I was at a CrossFit um, box, they call them in the person was telling this Hispanic family they could not eat corn or or tortillas anymore and that these types of things and it was like first of all that doesn't even make any sense because why what, what what's the purpose just that you know again there's not really any scientific reason for it and I, re- I remember looking at the family sitting there like with their eyes kind of glossed over like that's not going to happen so anyway yeah <laughs> Definitely meeting somebody where they are um, is is important. Yeah. So I want to rip off the Band-Aid. One of the questions I've been dying to ask you that I know I get asked a lot about is why is it harder for some, not even women, just in general, male, female, whoever it is, why is it harder for some people to lose weight outside of just lifestyle factors? Like some people are busier. Some people come from more difficult upbringings, knowledge gap, all of that. But from like a body perspective, physiology perspective, why is it harder for some people to lose weight? Yeah. Most people want to point to like metabolism. It must be that person's metabolism's faster, mine's slower or whatever. And I think a lot of the best look at this is really looking at like genetics and being like, okay, what's the difference between these people? And a lot of the genetics are in the brain in terms of um, uh, the central nervous system and appetite related. So the thought is it's not because of slow metabolisms. That's kind of been, you know, I don't know if you want to say debunked. It's, it's likely not metabolism differences. There may be, there may be slight differences, but when they look at like weight gain, over time and weight loss, your basal metabolic rate, what you burn without just living doesn't make a difference uh, of success or weight gain over time. I have to add, I always say it's not that your metabolism is slow is that you don't understand it. (laughs) So I love that you're saying that too. (laughs) It's, it's, it's true. And, and, you know, it's for some reason, the other thing is like people want their metabolism to be broken. Like they're like, they get really mad when you're like, it's not your metabolism. And I think that's because there's a lot of shame around, if, if we're talking about appetite, that means 
that, okay, people are eating, eating too many calories. And that with that idea comes a lot of shame. Like, but what I'm going to say is that there shouldn't be shame because a lot of it's subconscious. It's not, some of it's in your control, but unfortunately a lot of it because of our environments, because of genetics, it's not as much in your control as you think. There are ways to then put yourself in control. But if you go through life passively, unless we're getting fed by a metabolic ward, a kitchen that 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 knows the down to the calorie amount of every morsel that you're eating, you wouldn't, it's really hard to actually know how much you're eating. Yes, you can weigh your own food and you can do that, but you know, in the end, that's that's kind of a hard lifestyle to continue. And you know, some people do it, but for the most part, you know, why don't why don't some people gain weight? Why like why can some people be in this environment and not not gain weight? What what's different about them? And a lot of times, we we see they don't actually eat as much as they they think. People are like that person just eats whatever they want. It's like, yeah, well, if you look at kids, it's interesting watching kids. Um, you know, like I'll go to birthday parties and kind of see the differences between kids some kids they'll have like four cupcakes some kids will eat a half a cupcake they liked it they enjoyed it and like all right i'm full and throw it away it's like interesting so you take away like the societal things and you're just letting kids be kids without any knowledge of what they're what they're doing and you just watch them in their natural environment so a lot of it does come down to satiety um and and appetite and uh some of these people that you know kind of thin for most of their lives they they don't eat as much as they, um, as much as people think they do. And then there are other things like there's something called non-exercise activity thermogenesis. Some people, when they start trying to overeat their heart, it's actually hard for them to gain weight because not only do they get full, but then they start subconsciously moving more to, um, without, you know, not even just getting up and walking. It's just, you know, kind of fidgeting and other things that then can kind of burn off uh, calories. And then the other thing, there's some other interesting stuff about like, you know, is there, is there differences in absorption of the calories too? And it's possible, you know, some people, you know, poop out more calories too. It's, it's a lot of things like that. So, but when it comes to like people that struggle to lose weight in the end, um, a lot of it is appetite related because they can, they'll go on a diet, whatever it is, keto. It doesn't, it doesn't even matter what it is. And I see it, we have thousands of patients and we survey them to lose the weight multiple times, mind you, it's usually four or five times at least, and then they'll regain it. So re- losing and regaining the same 30 to 50 or more pounds. Um, and it, a lot of it says they just couldn't stick to it. And it's like, well, why, why not? They don't always know something, you know, life happened. Like you said, you know, something lifestyle, maybe they got a new job. Someone got divorced, someone died, you know, new married marriage, you know, whatever it is. But, um, in the end, why could the the lean, the person that didn't gain the weight, why could they just do whatever they want and not never gain the weight? It's because their brain's automatically making them not eat as much. It shouldn't be seen as shame. It should just be like understanding these differences and then trying to do something about it. You know, then at least, you know, and then you can target it. Yeah. Do you find people kind of go on a diet and it's, they're just following a set of rules or are they like, what I say is learning how to eat, like learning how to fuel their body, which is mindset and, you know, behavior based. It isn't just a diet plan, if that makes sense. So for you, what's, what's been your experience with like kind of debunking this diet culture mentality around dieting for weight loss versus what it actually basically takes to lose weight? Yeah. It's, 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 it's hard to 
break somebody from that. So and that's kind of where this environment comes into play. Like, so learning, learning how to fuel your body, learning what to eat and, and trying to stick to it. So like, let's, let's say somebody, I don't know, I'm trying to think of some office job, but cause that's always what it is. And or someone it could be a, sitting at, someone, someone sitting at their desk all day <laughs> that, that, and, and they're like, okay, I'm going to try to improve my eating habits. I'm going to make my pre-make my meals. I have a list of, just in case I have a list of healthful, like healthy fast food in the area, just in case, you know, they have all the preparedness and in comes Dan with the donuts, donut Dan. (laughs) And you're like, okay, you're like, all right, I'm, I'm pretty good. I, I don't need this. But over time, especially as one starts losing weight, unfortunately, there's this appetite drive in the body that starts kind of going up and up and up and the person can fight back then especially when they're eating you know whole healthful foods it, it it can it can help with that appetite driver but there's other parts of the brain that really makes you crave like if you have like an itch you just got to scratch some of that type of stuff donut dan comes in and you're like you've been good you've been fine you've been fine and some finally it's just like you're surrounded by it and you, you, despite you doing your best efforts and it's like there's only so long that not everybody, some people can, but there's only so long um, some people can really stay away from Donut Dan despite their best efforts. Um, so again, and some of that's genetic. Um, and and I think it, it's hard. It's hard to break people out of the on or off. So that's the other thing. I The, the, the analogy I come up with is like, why do people say they're going to start their diet on like whatever? I'm going to start my diet next week. It's like, well, why don't you just, start now and just kind of improving some of the stuff like just it's just it doesn't have to be you don't have to be on or off a diet like you said developing some of those habits and then you know some people are just are are really concentrated on the weight and then concentrating on the weight something that you can't directly control you control indirectly by the stuff you do but you cannot control that actual scale you can you can at least have some direct control over your immediate environment you can't stop donut dan from coming in you could ask him not to maybe bring that in but you know your immediate house but then it's hard because you got family members but you can at least have some direct control over that and you have some direct control over what you eat but again when donut dan's around some of those urges like the scratch that you just want to get at um it's hard to stay away anyway it's tough it's just it's tough Well, I've been really excited to pick your brain on all things weight loss medications. I know, you know, and I want to say, as many people who are listening to the show know, I'm not against weight loss medications in any way. In fact, they have a place and purpose. And we're going to get to Ozempic because that whole conversation with celebrities endorsing a weight loss drug and young women seeing it on the internet who might not need it, taking it is a whole ball game. And I know you have young children, so I'm I'm sure (laughs) we have the same thoughts on that. But before diving into Ozempic, I kind of wanted to talk about just weight loss drugs in general, but really when it comes to even deciding to use outside assistance with weight loss, weight management is almost a better way to put it. As a physician, how do you guide a patient to make this choice? Because it's, I know, a very complicated choice, I'm sure. Yeah. So, I mean, first there, there are FDA indications. So a BMI body mass index of 30 and above or 27 and above with what's called weight related comorbidity. So blood pressure, you know, even I would say PCOS, um, 
cholesterol issues, like triglycerides high, HDL low, blood sugars elevated, that type of thing. So that would be like if you're 20, you know, 28 BMI, but you have some of these other things going on metabolically, then you'd qualify. So that that that's the first qualifier for the FDA, at least it doesn't, that doesn't mean a doctor can't just write the medicine. Like you said, for someone who has none of those, because doctors can write off label and it's, you know, it's neither good nor bad because it can be, can be good, but it can be bad. But, um, uh, so that's the first thing, but here's, here's the thing. So like if somebody has been trying, they've, they've worked with very good lifestyle coaches and, and intensive behavioral therapy, and they're still struggling with their weight, but also struggling with like metabolic issues because of their weight. Not just like, okay, I have a 30 BMI, but I'm just starkly metabolically healthy. They would still qualify and we don't necessarily withhold medicine from them if they want to try it. But from a clinical perspective, we really try to help the people with what we'd call more severely staged obesity, meaning clinically they're doing worse because of their obesity. I, I have patients, it's, it's, you know, it's relatively rare when you look at the statistics somewhere around seven to, you know, five to maybe 15% of patients have like truly like a metabolically healthy obesity. Cause once you start looking deeper into labs and all sorts of things, looking at insulin sensitivity, it's like, well, um, there are a lot of people out there that may see, think that they're metabolically healthy, but not, but there are people there are, wait, this um, is the moment we talk about health at every size on this podcast. Yeah. We're going to go there for a second. This all always right, serves the right. pot. Um, I actually used to come from like an eating disorder background. So yeah. really interesting perspective, obviously now in like the fully weight loss space, it's interesting when people say health at every size. And I think you can be multiple sizes and shapes and weights and be healthy or not healthy. And also being yeah. lower body fat percentage doesn't mean you're healthy either. Right. Yeah. Correct. But it's really interesting. That statistic you just said of that seven to 8% and how you might appear healthy in a heavier body per se, potentially, yeah. but just because you appear healthy and you have maybe obesity doesn't necessarily mean you are metabolically healthy. That is, that's huge. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and so the thing is too, like when you, it's, it depends on how detailed the labs you get. Cause like, you know, just, you know, not to bore everybody, but your blood sugar can look normal, but you can have insulin resistance. And that's simply because your pancreas is, is, is working hard to keep your blood sugar normal. It's, and, it's not until, and your blood sugar starts going up. That's when your pancreas isn't maybe working as well. And you have a lot of insulin resistance, but there can be insulin resistance there despite everything kind of looking normal. So I think a lot of it's relative. I hate, you know, there's a lot of fitness pros out there that are like, you're, you're obese, you're unhealthy. Ugh, you're obese, you know, you're, years. <laughs> and it's kind of like, okay, like, sure. Uh, excess adiposity, excess weight can be unhealthy. Yes. We should strive to be, you know, as lean as we can without causing obviously other issues trying, you know, whatever, but like, the the wording is it they they don't think they're shaming people but the way they the way they do it it, it it's it's shaming because they're basically saying you're a piece of crap because you're you have obesity but they'll say you're obese and uh and you're unhealthy and it's like well well hold on a second like my patient who's 300 pounds who is like walking a lot lifting weights eating a healthful dietary pattern but like still m maybe 300 pounds 
they're healthier than what they were, you know, maybe when they were 350 pounds, um, but they still technically have obesity. So like, I, I don't know. It's, it's just, it's, it's, it's the way they do it. It's complicated. Yeah. And, and yeah. That's with, why with, I get so passionate. I've seen both sides of the spectrum. There's just such a divide and welcome to my Ted talk, everyone. There's such a divide between like the lean fit talk, like all of that stuff. And then like the health at every size, your weight doesn't matter. And it's like, well, it's a little bit more gray than that. Like we're health professionals. Like we know it's not just so black and white. And of course it depends on the person you're talking to, but I think we just have to approach each person so individually. And also like, we just have a lot, there's a lot of judgment with being um, Mm -hmm. suffering from obesity and having excess body fat and, you know, that whole gamut of things. But yeah, I agree. People are so quick to say like you're obese and then offer no support with like actually how to solve the problem that the person obviously knows that they're struggling with. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's just, yeah, it's, it's not helpful. So unless you say like, look, so like I, I just say it's all relative, you know, it's all it's all relative. We strive to be the better, better. There are risks. I, I pointed out the other day is obesity is unhealthy, quote, says the bodybuilder who's on multiple anabolic steroids and growth oh, hormone. Says liver. <laughs> I mean, well, there's lots of people that do it. I mean, like it's not just someone like him, but like there's there's all sorts of people that that do it. And I'm like, and, and people are like, well two things can be true at once. I'm like, I know this is supposed to be like a ironic slash hypocritical, like funny, like tweet. I'm not being illogical that saying like, it's it's just more hypocritical because what the person, the person's portraying that their lifestyle is healthy. They don't mention it. They don't say anything about their lifestyle, not being unhealthy. And then they sit there and attack those with obesity. And it's like, listen, you're, you're kind of pushing it up that you have like all this muscle and you're like this super healthy ripped person, but actually you're probably unhealthy. You're you're probably worse off Mm -hmm. because you could just have a clot in your heart because of your, you know, erythrocytosis and high hematic. You know what I mean? Like there's all sorts of little things. You you see these bodybuilders just dropping dead because they're on abusing their drugs. Anyway, it was just, but that's what I see all the time in the internet. It drives me insane. It's like, well, when it comes down to it, I think you know, who actually is healthy? Like there's a lot of us that have unhealthy lifestyle behaviors that, you know, but then we were quick to point the finger just because we can see the obesity on somebody as opposed to people texting while driving. You know, nobody says anything about that. What about the binge binge drinking on the weekend? Uh, you know, just all sorts of weird, unhealthy behaviors. A lot that, of hypocrisy is a good It is. <laughs> it is. Drives me. It, drives, it, it pisses me off because I just want to point the finger at them too. I'm like, who are you talking about? <laughs> yeah. But thinking about things like SSRIs, um, you know, for various conditions that people might be on, have you seen any specific medications that have made weight loss harder for individuals and even for women too, with like birth control? I get that question a lot. Um, Talk to us a little bit about medications you might be on that aren't weight related. Well, I guess SSRIs can be associated with weight gain, right? So that's a whole different conversation, but um, you know, really with some of these drugs, are they more difficult is it more difficult for women and even men to lose weight on some of these drugs? Yeah, some of these, uh, s- some of the drugs um, are associated with weight gain or or even more difficulty for weight loss, and it comes down to a few categories. Drugs can have an effect on appetite. I'd say probably that's the most important one to know. That's kind of what gets us back to like 
the beginning of the conversation is like, yeah, it's, it, it's a lot of it's appetite. Um, so drugs that can cause appetite issues and that's, you know, antidepressants, maybe SSRIs, uh, well, butrin actually, it's a norepinephrine dopamine reuptake, uh, inhibitor as opposed to a selective, um, uh, uh, serotonin reuptake inhibitor. So SSRI that may, that probably has a little bit of effect on increasing appetite. The, the studies paroxetine or Paxil is probably the, the one that people most think of as weight gain. Whereas like fluoxetine, which is Prozac, maybe slight weight loss or more weight neutral. So there's even heterogeneity amongst the, amongst the SSRIs, but in general, the SSRIs probably have a slight increase in, in weight, likely appetite related. And some people think, well, well, no, maybe they feel better now and they're not, you know, depressed. So they're uh, they a little bit more. <laughs> But like, it depends on it. And depression is, has a lot of heterogeneity too. It's not just one thing. It's, it's, it has a lot of components anyway. Um, so SSRIs, but then there's really the antipsychotics. So like the, the, um, medicines that when people, you know, if, if they're valproic acid and, um, some of these other ones that are, are used like the really hard psychiatric drugs that we see, those ones, you know, there may be some, um, there's both an appetite component, maybe with some of the histamine that it hits in the, in the brain, but then also, um, there may be a nutrient partitioning effect because you actually see worsening metabolic markers as well. And so nutrient partitioning. So like, you know, everybody says, you know, calorie is a calorie or calories are not calories. What they mean is like macronutrients aren't macronutrients. So you can eat calories from protein and people will say, well, 300 calories from a steak is different from 300 calories from whatever, a soda. I don't care, whatever it is, some licorice, I don't care, whatever. And it's true. They're, they both have the same amount of calories, but where you utilize and metabolize and, and um, those calories and, and, and store those calories will be different because the macronutrients will have different metabolic effects. So anyway, nutrient partitioning is say somebody eats, you know, starts eating extra calories and they're sedentary versus someone else who's lifting weights and using those calories. Well, that other person will probably have a nutrient partitioning effect into more muscle, whereas the other person may gain more fat, um, adipose tissue. It's anyway, the, the, these other drugs, these antipsychotic drugs may have a, it's called a nutrient partitioning effect into places that you don't want to adipose tissue, like ectopic fat into liver and, and, and all sorts of stuff. So that, that's another component there. There are, um, other drugs like beta blockers for blood pressure, or even some people use them for anxiety, they can lower your metabolism a little bit in general. There, there's some that probably better than others, but um, in general, they're beta blockers. They're blocking the beta adrenergic system and certain receptors. Lower your metabolism also can make you maybe not move as much, kind of tired, uh, exercise intolerance. Birth control, uh, by the way. So when you look at the studies, it's kind of weird. It's like, women swear, they swear up and down, they gained 20 pounds from their oral contraceptive. Whereas some people are like, nope, nothing for me. And when you look at the studies, there aren't, it, it seems kind of weight neutral, but um, the Depo-Provera shot, uh, medroxy, uh, acetate, progesterone, that specifically has the most pronounced effect that's seen in the studies. So the Depo shot, in terms but of appetite fluctuations, weight gain. Yeah. Weight, weight gain. gain. And, and it's probably a little bit of appetite. There may be a little bit of fluid shift. There's probably some water changes. So like, if that's ever a concern, we're like, well, 
you know, the copper IUD, which can be really annoying for many women just because of, you know, menorrhagia and, and other things, whereas like the Mirena can actually help with periods and all these different things. Anyway, um, if, if anybody was like, I don't want to mess with the hormones, um, that's usually the route I go, but there's probably a little bit of an effect with contraceptives. And when you look at like the average, it doesn't look like much, but then some people will, I mean, it's clear as day. Some people are like, I, my appetite and cravings. And unfortunately, when you look at the average, it doesn't look like much weight gain, but there's probably an individual um, thing there going on. Very interesting. And of course you probably see where I'm going with this. If you're on an SSRI or something like Paxil or, you know, on contraceptive and you are experiencing a higher appetite, weight gain, all of that stuff, what would you recommend for these women to do? Yeah. So we, you know, depending if it's the psychiatrist, if it's me prescribing, then I change. I, I, I try to stay away from those certain weight uh, gain type of medicines. Um, so like not even prescribing them in the first place, trying to find. I, I'll use an alternative uh, okay. if possible. The thing is sometimes, sometimes there's not an alternative um, with contraceptive. There can be, you know, like, you know, you can do, you know, local, like a Nuva, Nuva ring and, or a IUD or anything like that. Um, you can get away from the depot shot. It really depends on the person meeting them where they are. You know, again, are people going to remember a pill every single day? Are people going to be comfortable with an IUD? Or, you know, people are going to pain to put it in. Oh, my yeah, goodness. I know. I, I can't even imagine. So I can't even talk. Like, I don't even want to mansplain it. So um, I can't. <laughs> Wait, I love that you use mansplain. I say that word a lot. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. I always joke. My patients, sometimes I'll have a um, patient come in who's like a, she's a, a, a physician or something like that. And, um, and I'll start talking about something. And I'm like, wait, wait, what do you do for a job? She's like, well, I'm a physician. I'm like, all right, I don't want to mansplain any of this stuff then to you. And they always laugh. <laughs> I'm like, because I always, I, I feel bad. I'm start talking about it. Wait a second. I need to know what, like what you're, do you know this stuff already? Anyway. So, um, yeah. So IUD, yeah, it's an option, but like, you know, that's not always an option or not wanted to be an option. NuvaRing, you know, people want to do that. Uh, some people aren't comfortable using those. So. So yeah, you find you find alternatives, and then you whoever's prescribing them. If it's not me, if it's their psychiatrist, you try to find alternatives, and and it's not always possible, unfortunately. Good thing is with the beta blockers, you know, a lot of uh, older doctors unfortunately still use those for hypertension, and they really shouldn't be. We have so many other drugs that are good for blood pressure that you don't need to use those. But I still see I still see them commonly prescribed, and I'm like, why are you on this? You know, sometimes you after a heart attack, you, you need you need these drugs and. And and for heart rate um, control, but like you know, it's, if it's just for regular blood pressure, there's many other drugs. So anyway, there's lots lots of alternatives. Sometimes it's not possible. You do the best you can, but at least if you're aware of it, you can hopefully prevent that from happening or start making recommendations to change. I love that, and I think what everyone listening can really take from this is obviously you have to trust your physician. There are things that you are not going to realize, especially in the medication prescribing realm, that a common person like me, not prescribing medication. Like I'm not going to understand those nuances, but working with your doctor, advocating for yourself, seeing if there are other options and not just almost like accepting things at face value. If you are struggling with some of these things, but you also have to understand, is it the medication maybe causing these things or is your diet a hot mess express? As I like to say too, Um, and both of those together can be a tornado for struggle with your weight, of course. Yeah. Okay, drum roll, please. I want to talk about Ozempic. 
Yeah. I've been so excited to talk to you about it. Can you describe first what Ozempic is used for? Because I know a lot of women have messaged me. Why are people just promoting this drug for weight loss? Like, like, and I think it would help from like a physiology perspective, how it would help someone lose weight. Yeah. So these, these drugs are glucagon, like peptide one agonist, GLP one agonists. And, um, kind of the discovery of them was really interesting, but basically they're called incretins and, uh, I don't know, it was the fifties where they were injecting sugar into veins versus making people drink sugar drinks and wanted to see what happened to insulin and all this glycemia. And what they found was insulin went higher when they drank the sugar. And they're like, well, that's, that's kind of weird. If we figured if we injected uh, the sugar, you, you'd go straight to your pancreas and you'd have higher insulin oh, like levels. Injecting, like yeah, just, yeah. So, but, but no, when they drank the sugar, it went higher. So, so then they called it incretin intestinal secretion of insulin. That was like their, their term. Anyway, fast forward and they started figuring out how to isolate it. And they found a little lizard uh, that had it in that saliva, like a little, and they, they uh, concentrated it, made it into a drug called Bayetta or Exenatide. And that was the first one, 2005 or six, it got approved and it was a twice a day injection. It had maybe a little bit of weight loss associated with it. But as the years have gone by, they figured out how to make, change the peptide, make it last longer, longer half-lives. The peptides hit the receptors in uh, differently in different places. And um, so Ozempic is semaglutide. It's a once a week instead of twice a day like the old exanatide. It's a once a week GLP-1 agonist. And that's actually, that one's technically only approved for type 2 diabetes. Now, there's the exact same medicine called semaglutide that's approved for weight loss called Wegovi. The issue is that Wegovi, when it came out, Novo Nordisk is the manufacturer. They screwed up the manufacturing process, and then there's a huge demand, and there's a big shortage. They're supposed to be back here soon. I don't know. I don't know who to believe, but um, I'll believe it when I start seeing it in the pharmacies. So Ozempic then is the is the semaglutide leftover that's approved for type two diabetes. TikTok social media goes crazy. The stuff does work extremely well for weight loss. The the gist of it is when I talk about appetite, this GLP-1 hits certain parts of the brain that have a massive effect on satiety and even the cravings. It hits, it goes down the pathway to where it's hitting these reward centers. Kind of interesting stuff where Donut Dan comes in. Back to Donut Dan. I Donut Dan comes in and you don't care if he brings in donuts. You're just like, I'm good. And if you do, you have one, you have a little, few bites of it. Instead of eating a couple donuts after that one bite, you have a few bites and you're good. It's like you're reprogrammed around food. And I'm going to go as far to say this, you're reprogrammed around food without having to mentally put in the work to reprogram yourself almost. It is. It's it's such an interesting, it's so interesting. And now that I've had just thousands of patients, I use semaglutide. Uh, I use it in, you know, the form of Wegovi. I use, there's another one called Trulicity, which is Dilaglutide. That's an older version. Now there's a new stuff called Terzepatide, which is actually, um, I don't know if you heard of Manjaro. Anyway, that one's technically only approved for type 2 diabetes as well. So it's probably going to get approved, you know, I'd say in the next half year for obesity, for weight loss specifically. But right now it's only approved 
for um, uh, type two diabetes. But the the effects, what they people describe, I've never taken the medicines, but people describe it as I feel like I should feel like around food. Like I feel like I don't like I feel like what someone who has never struggled with their weight probably feels like. Like they just they they still enjoy food, but they don't have to have more, and they don't have to have an extra serving. It's fascinating. This kind of goes it plays into the whole like all right. What you're discussing is trying to help people navigate their way through this, what we call like an obesogenic environment. That's what else are we going to do? We got to navigate. We have to like learn skills in order to develop better relationships with the food and get around some of these physiological drivers and help them go through the environment. And some people are obviously successful. I mean, you see it. But then there's a lot of people who are still struggling. And they no matter how many times they try. And then finally, you you give them one of these drugs and it's like, oh, okay, I, I can actually do this now. And so one of the common things that people think is that, oh, you're just giving, you know, you're just giving people crutches and whatever. And it's like, well, no, they they know, they know how to eat. They know that they should probably eat their apple instead of the donut. They know that eating broccoli is probably better than eating French fries or whatever. I don't know. I'm just coming up with very extreme examples. But but they people know most people kind of know that, but the the medicine basically helps them then do it. The issue is, as you pointed out, is that as with all things, things get abused instead of medically indicated purposes. Hollywood gets a hold of it. People without the right indications start using it. And now you have a shortage. <laughs> and 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 it's and you know what's interesting it goes even further because there's a shortage now there's like compounding pharmacies that um they find these loopholes to basically uh put it you know make it themselves they they find ways to get the peptide and then they put some b12 and some other things in there uh, which i don't recommend just kidding <laughs> yeah of, of course and I, I i don't recommend it for anybody's listening I, I it's cheaper to do it that way you can but these these places are the thing about compounding pharmacies that you worry about is contamination and and how they're preparing it. Uh, there's proprietary ways of of doing it. So I I would never recommend to a patient. I don't make any money. I, like that's the other thing. People are like, well, you make you must get kickbacks from big pharma. And I always joke about how like, oh my god, I've never thought that about you. Really? Ever. Oh, that's good. People well, say that about you. That's why a lot of people say. So I'm always like, where's my? I want a golf tournament size check to come through my door. <laughs> you know, those big old checks. I want the big check. I want that because, like, for as much as people say it, I just, I always joke. I'm like, I, I, I do get offers. I have, I've gotten offers. Like, hey, oh, you sure. know, speaking of it, I, I haven't yet. Um, you know, I could do it in the future. I just, I. I actually don't, I don't on purpose because I don't want people, because you can actually look it up how much doctors make. I've had a few lunches and so it shows up as like maybe every few years it'll, it'll show like 30 bucks or something. But um, you can actually look it up. And some some people I look up, I'm like, oh my God, that, that doctor did somehow get made $500,000 in consulting fees from that big pharma. But um, no, I, I'm, I, I love the drugs, but I do, I hate that people abuse them and uh, they should be reserved for... Uh, the indications really. Um, yeah. And so anyway, on, on a health side, you know, I think about women desperate and I always say you can want to lose weight, but being extremely desperate to lose weight can get you making choices that are going to have long-term implications Yeah, as much as it is sometimes traumas and things you have to work through too. 
or, you know, using medications, you also have, it it isn't just take the medication, never change any lifestyle behaviors. There is a component of it, sort of like with bariatric surgery, you know, I've talked about that before, but what would you say for young women? I mean, most of the people listening to this show are not going to just, you know, go to Ozempic, even if they have like five more pounds, yeah. they want to lose. Like they, they, they're here because they want to do this the right yeah, way. Right. But for maybe women who just stumble upon this show right now, who have heard about it, it's tempting to them. They now know a little bit more about the drug. What are consequences to taking it when you do not need it? Yeah. So the issue is too, these are meant to be kind of like indefinite medicines, meaning like they're to be used chronically. So someone for example, that has high blood pressure, they do their best lifestyle and their still blood pressure is high. We go, okay, I think you need a blood pressure medicine because otherwise you're at risk for having a stroke and a heart attack. Okay. So once their blood pressure gets down to a good rate a place, we don't go, all right, time to take the blood pressure medicine off. So these medicines, what you see is that they help people lose the weight. Some people don't respond by the way. Some people respond very well, but these newer ones are so powerful that like most people lose plenty of weight. And then, you know, if you were to take them off, majority of people will start to slowly regain their weight. So the risk of this would be like, do you understand that? Like, it's possible you could use this and lose weight and maybe keep it off after you come off. But like, if you didn't have that much to lose. So the reason I, I, I push against people is specifically women, but could be men too. If people do this yo-yo cycle when they, when they don't have a lot of weight to lose and um, they don't have cardiometabolic issues from their weight. The risk that you see is bone loss and you see muscle loss. And the implications of that are pretty big because it's really hard to build back bone and you can break a hip later in life. It also sets you up for just like you know, what, what is your relationship with food? Do you like, so are you, are you willing to take this medicine for the rest of your life? Probably not. You're probably doing this like to just kind of, you know, get I'm saying for the people that are just taking it uh, recreationally to get into a wedding dress or whatever, that's what, that's what I, that's the stuff I get emails about. And so if you, I mean, sure, I suppose you could do that, but there are risks, like you said, the risk beyond just having to take it for, for good. It's the risks would be like severe nausea. You can get severe nausea from it. Some people get diarrhea, constipation. You know, some people are so sensitive to the medicine that they, there are some people that end up in the ER. It's rare. And the thing is, it's always when you're a doctor prescribing these things, you go over the risk reward. So the, the more reward for a patient. So people that struggle with their weight that truly have a, a potential benefit, it's like, the risks are low, but once you start getting somebody that really is healthy, number one, it's not FDA indicated. Number two, like you, the, there's more harm that can be done than benefit. Like what benefit are you going to give them? Just some vanity weight. So then it becomes teetering over into the more risk category. And I would say it's probably the nausea. And again, they could just stop the medicine um, and that's fine. There are some other, you know, potential, any drug has a, a potential risk. If it has some sort of metabolic benefit, there's always a potential for risk, allergic reactions and that type of thing. But I, I would say like, look, what, what's the purpose of taking this? Do you, do you plan on taking this long-term? Do you think it's going to help you maybe with your habits? You know, maybe, I don't know. I just, I honestly, I would be, if anybody's listening, I would not take the medicine for purely just vanity purposes, unless like, you know, you actually struggle with obesity or ob- obesity related disease. 
That's that would be my take. I mean, really powerful coming from you, knowing that you literally prescribe this medication to people and to hear that it isn't just, this isn't like candy. Honestly, this conversation around Ozempic kind of, it's different, but reminds me of the conversation around steroids that I think so many people now, I mean, not every population, right? But a lot of my audience knows how these can come with consequences. You think about the muscle gain, but it's not just as simple as that. And I think hopefully this podcast will shed a light a little bit more on Yes, it's a drug. Yes, it can be helpful. It has a place and a purpose, but it isn't like a little kid going into a candy store. Like not all of us need to be taking this drug for weight loss. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, again, this the supply. I mean, like the, I guess the thing is like if there was a ton of supply, it was super cheap. Cause the other thing you don't want to do is like insurance can sometimes pay for it, even when it's not indicated and they may not look into it. Cause the issue is then you're overburning and in insurances. And the thing is, most people don't care. Like, let's be honest. A lot of people are just people selfish. People don't give a crap. <laughs> people are selfish. They don't care. They don't care about the greater good. I mean, that's, it's just sad to say, but uh, you know, I mean, look, if, if you understand the risks, I'm not going to stop you. I'm not going to prescribe it, but um, I'm sure you'll find some doctor that will, you know, they're, they're already doing it, you know? So um, they are. unfortunately, yeah. you see it all the time. I get, I get asked by reporters all the time about it and. It's, it's, it, you know, the, the social media is interesting. It's, it's a whole new landscape and, and it is the first time. So like some of the older drugs, there's fentramine, which has been around since the 1950s. Which I still so get people coming to me post fentramine, they gain all the way back once they go on. Yeah. Yeah. So like that's, it's, it's, it's the same thing. So like if you were to take the, the Ozempic or uh, Wegovy or whatever, when it wasn't indicated, you, you stop it. Most of the weight's going to come back and it, it's because you just, it's, it's a powerful appetite and craving uh, reward center drug. So like, I don't know if you just want to take it for a short time just to lose weight, but that's, it's, you're risking losing your, your bone and your muscle and it's hard to gain those back. And then you, the, the idea is with yo-yo dieting, you lose the muscle and then you start regaining the weight and then you, you regain more fat and then you try to lose weight again and you keep losing muscle with the fat. And then you just, you just keep going and going and you keep losing more and more muscle. And it's just not a good, good way. So I always promote like Hey, instead of maybe trying to look at the scale, maybe we should try to just like get stronger, maybe fitness. I don't know. You're that's, the doc who lifts. We love a little strength training over here. That's, that's great. That's the goal. It's it's easier said than done to get people into that, but uh, that's the goal. It's the goal. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Nadolski. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, so thanks for having me on. 